Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, uh, Beyond the Vaults and Virtual Wallets We Go. It's a series that's brought to you by Monocle Solutions, where we're delving into the dynamic world of banking. It's uh, great to be back with you. I'm your host, Michael Avery. And uh, in the series, in episode two, we're going to be exploring SVB and uh, the doomsday scenarios. So whether you're a banking professional, a financial enthusiast, or someone who just simply wants to stay informed about the world of finance, you're certainly in the right place. Uh, so let's get cracking for the second episode. Once again, great to have in studio with me the author of Why Banks Fail and CEO of Monocle Solutions, David Buckham. David, uh, great to have you back in. And I think the response that we got from that first episode clearly indicates that this podcast is going places. It's fulfilling a need, I think, in a big gap in the market. So um, fantastic to be chatting to you again on a, a very important topic that's very current, and that was SVB, Silicon Valley Bank. And when we, we talk about why banks fail, we've had three major US bank failures this year alone. And in your analysis, you emphasize the fundamental drivers behind the failure of SVB, you cite excess liquidity, misguided regulations. Can you just delve a little bit deeper into those factors that contributed to the bank's vulnerability and then how they played out in the broader financial landscape? Thank you, Michael. First of all, thanks for having me back. Um, it's really an interesting time that we live in. And if I could give some context to your question about um, what led to the failure of SVB is to just reflect on the fact that in the build-up to the global financial crisis, uh, there was an overextension of credit and not enough money uh, in, at the end of the day. What's interesting about SVB is it's precisely the opposite. There's too little credit and too much money. So there was an eight-fold increase, nine-fold increase in M2 money supply in U.S. dollars. Uh, during COVID, the Fed's balance sheet went from $4.5 trillion to $9 trillion. So that's the the inverse, that's the other side of, of money supply. So think of that loosely as a listener, as you being, being a doubling of the amount of U.S. dollars in circulation from the period April 2020 to April 2022, a, a, literally a double doubling of the amount of U.S. dollars in circulation. Then at the same time, you had stimulus checks. There were three rounds of stimulus checks of $1,200 each to just about every American, literally. You had um, student loan write-offs, uh, which are still co uh, contentious to this day. And you had um, about $400 billion of business loans that were written off. And all number of other alleviations to save the American economy uh, by the Fed and by government. Government debt in the U.S. went from about $22 trillion to $33 trillion in, those, in that two-year period, which is why, you know, the Republicans have some point to make, as, although I'm, I'm not picking sides here, but, I mean, this is why we, 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 we almost had the U.S. government come to a grinding halt. 
So I'm really pleased that we've had this experiment because before this, there were advocates for modern monetary theory, MMT or the magic money tree. Don't worry with the years, we can just print money. We can inflate our way out of these. And I think where we are today is quite thankfully dispelling some of that um, magical economic thinking. But back to your point. Well, yeah, I I mean, I would say one could think of it as an opioid. Um, You know, there's they printed so much money that I think to some extent they devalued money itself. Um, And they also helped create an environment of greed uh, and gambling, which we saw in the crypto world. Mm. And we also saw massive distrust. You know, when when, when you simply print your way out of the global financial crisis for, you know, 10 years and COVID. So, so let's think about it like this. Silicon Valley Bank is a cool, you know, West Coast bank. It's like your go-to bank for venture capitalists. So it has larger depositors than usual that, that exceed the, <clears throat> the limit of deposit insurance. Um, so technically speaking, they're not protected by a government guarantee. Deposit base is very large. More than 80 or 90% of it exceeds the, the deposit limit for guarantee. And they receive, you know, they go from being a $50 billion bank to being a, a, a 200 odd billion dollar bank, 209, I think, billion dollar bank in the space of a couple of years. And Gregory Becker, who was their CEO in 2018, was one of, one of the people that, that, that lobbied for the stress test limit and the capital charge, you know, the, all of the all of the rules that were in place for banks around the U.S. that that had excluded really small banks under 50 billion, they raised it to 250 billion under the Trump administration in 2018. So, SVB was now no longer protected by the same rules that protected other banks and that protected the owners of the bank, like the shareholders, nor protected the depositors. It had grown massively um, over a very short period of time because there was so much money in venture capital and so much money in tech on the West Coast, you know, before free money ended, you know, finally when Jay Powell got the message that people were depositing so much money with the bank that the bank literally did not know what to do with the money, which is why I say they failed because they got too much money and not enough credit because that they ideally should have taken that money and made loans. But they were too busy being a, a cool West Coast venture capital bank and they invested a lot of that money, an enormous proportion of that money, in US government bonds, treasuries, they were trading at yields that were at all-time lows and prices that therefore were at all-time highs. So it should have been self-evident to anybody that once the Fed has to fight inflation and raise interest rates, then the future coupon payments and capital repayments on those bonds would be discounted by more, and therefore the bond values would drop significantly. But under the mixed measure, measurement approach to accounting, if you classify those bonds as held to maturity, 
then you don't have to um, absorb any unrealized losses or gains on your income statement or in the equity on your balance sheet, which is to say that so long as you don't have to sell them, their value is meaningless, which is crazy. But SVB had had some withdrawals and they had to sell some of their bonds and Gregory Becker announced that they'd made a 1.8 billion loss to increase liquidity to meet the withdrawals. Yeah, because this is the real world and sometimes you do have to crystallize losses and you can't just um, pretend you're going to hold things to maturity in some kind of idealized. But, you know, back to the Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act. Uh, It was at the time that you mentioned in the book the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office noted with distinct concern that the rollback would increase the likelihood that a large financial firm with assets of between 100 and 250 billion US dollars would fail. And so there were warning signs flashing in the US about this before we saw the failure of SVB. Yes, there were. And I mean, the San Francisco Fed in November of last year, which is to say literally six months prior, uh, should have, I mean, they knew this. They knew that uh, SVB had overinvested in government bonds. And, I mean, Michael, the extent to, of this problem is huge. Bank of America has $100 billion of unrealized losses on their government bonds, but they don't have to realize them because they're liquid and there's no run on their bank. But as the CFA Institute has pointed out, whether you're holding it to maturity or whether you're intent on selling it, it shouldn't make any difference to the value of the financial asset. It's it's only because of the mixed measurement approach that this is possible. And in the US stress test scenario, so if I could finish off on SVB. So what happened with SVB is the crisis usually occurs, and we've seen this in history, it's fascinating, all the way from John Law. The crisis usually occurs when a senior figure from the bank announces that they are raising capital or that they need people to bring the gold back or mm-hmm. you know, paper money can't be converted to gold. Whenever someone signals that They need to do this to make sure everything will be fine. That's when people panic. And so when Gregory Becker announced that they had incurred a $1.8 billion loss on um, their bond portfolio and that they were doing a $2 billion equity raise to fill the hole, that was the, the death knell of the bank. A few days later, he got on a plane and went to his house in Lahaina in Maui, which very tragically, uh, uh, Lahaina was burnt down. Um, so I'm not sure w- what the outcome for his house was, but at the at, at that time it still existed and he was seen uh, in flip-flops on the beach. And it was like a really bad look, very poor optics, Yeah. given that, you know, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation had gone in and said, no, you got to close this bank down. And then they then guaranteed all the deposits, even those over the deposit threshold limit, and they nullified the risk for the depositors, thank God, but they created this 
massive moral hazard. And shortly thereafter, you had First Republic and any number of banks could have failed after that. What I find mind-blowing, if I could pivot here, what I find mind-blowing is that only a few months later, so that was in March, March 9th through to 11th, that, that all occurred. The Federal Reserve, which, remember, does two things. It runs money, the U.S. dollar. Uh, it's got a dual mandate, so it must target inflation and target unemployment, which is unusual because usually you just target inflation, inflation yep. as a central bank. <clears throat> and one can debate whether having a dual mandate is appropriate or not for a central bank. But remember, the Federal Reserve is the institution that's independent from government that alongside the U.S. Treasury, through its 12 branches and its board of governors, runs the U.S. dollar, targets inflation and targets unemployment. But it also regulates banks. So the Federal Reserve is ultimately responsible for the governance of the banking system. Yeah. So when you have three major banks, three of the four largest bank failures in U.S. history, occurring in March, and they're running then a stress test in June, you would expect their stress test to address the risks that occurred in March. But no, in their stress test, they predict a severe recession in which the Fed then drops interest rates from 5.5% all the way back to zero, therefore nullifying all of the unrealized losses on all the bond portfolios of all the banks in America and increasing unemployment from 36 3.7% to 10% and experiencing a 38% decline on commercial real estate. But the stress test, because of the 2018 rollback, is only performed on 23 of the 4,500 banks in America. What? Only 23 banks qualify under the rollback of having assets of more than $250 billion in assets, and therefore only cover 20% of the commercial real estate market. So there's 80% of the risk out there that hasn't been covered at all by the stress test. So that, and they've nullified the unrealized losses on the bond portfolios, which is what killed SVB. They then announced that the banking system's fine, and that leads to several of those 23 banks increasing their dividend payout, which is fine. I mean, I'm happy for the, the shareholders. But this is the same institution that's uh, running the dollar. And the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And the dollar's fluctuations export inflation, including to us in South Africa. So it's incredibly distressing to me. I read about this. It blew my mind when I read about it. It was called the Doomsday Stress Scenario. And the FT, in a reasonably uncritical fashion, called it like a severe doomsday scenario. And I would agree, it's pretty severe. Because where we sit today is certainly not a situation where we're seeing uh, the the Fed funds rate going from five and a half to zero in the space of a year. Um, employment is still very strong in the U.S. Uh, the the Fed seems determined to to keep rates uh, where they are at the moment, and and so this scenario seems highly unlikely that we'll go back to a situation where these um, uh, losses 
are, are not realized. So what happens then if we start to see some of these losses crystallized in the U.S. banking sector? What is the doomsday scenario? Yeah, for me, the, 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 you know, if I was a cynical man, which I'm not, I would say that it's almost a deliberately good scenario that they call in a doomsday scenario. They call it in a severe scenario. The, the real scenario is much more likely to be, and I have the benefit of it being October now, which is, uh, they ran the scenario in June. So I have the benefit of it. Right. And it's, a, it's an annual test. But what seems very clear is that the U.S. unemployment rate is, and the new jobs data just came out, 366,000 new jobs, something of that order. That was yesterday or the day before. It seems to me that U.S. unemployment will stay very low. The U.S. is not going to go into recession. It looks like bond yields are, are going up. And it looks like the Fed will probably have to raise rates more, if anything, certainly not drop them. That means that we live in a world where the mixed measurement approach has a whole lot of banks with unrealized losses on their bond portfolios. So any bank at which there's a lack of trust for any reason, could be reputational, will have to have a blanket guarantee which will instantly make those banks non-viable free market entities. So I would predict you don't want to be a a mid-sized U.S. bank but also enormous moral hazard in the system. For me, it's blindingly obvious that you can't set, you can't, you know, design your own test. Yeah. There should be another part of, it could be, for example, the Senate Banking Committee. But then we investigated that. There's a large overlap of the personnel from the Senate Banking Committee that also sits in the U.S. Treasury. So there is... A lot of work to be done, I would say, with the governance structure in the U.S. system, yeah. which would um, which would need to be done. I mean, it's fascinating because regulatory authorities, financial commentators are often criticized for attributing financial failures to individual actors rather than addressing these underlying systemic issues. Mm-hmm. And now, now you're really touching on the, the root cause here, which seems to be uh, a governance framework that um, is poorly incentivized uh, to to really act within the best interests of the financial system and, and not potentially, and I'm not suggesting here that there was anything untoward uh, benefiting particular shareholders, but it's clearly a governance system mm. that isn't calibrated to pick up these broad-based systemic risks in the system. So what are the other structural reforms or policy changes that you believe are necessary then to strengthen and stabilize a financial system and prevent similar crises in the future? So the first point would be that the, that banking needs to be understood as an inherently risky pursuit. So you, you're borrowing short to lend long. You're a maturity intermediator. That's what you are as a bank. There's some banks that generate more fees, but competition has you made those fees lower and lower and lower. So you need to lend or do some kind of financial intermediation. And on a non-inverted yield curve, you're going to have to lend long and borrow short. And therefore, you're going to have to continuously replenish deposits, which means to say that if you lose public trust, 
you're instantly dead. So it's just a kind of sudden death event. So for me, creating rules that in massively increase capital, like for example, Michael, the fact that global systemically important banks have to hold more capital and therefore are less attractive investments than non-GSIBs doesn't make sense. Why would you want the largest banks in the world to be less attractive investments? That, and what happens there? We've seen the likes of Credit Suisse. Uh, Credit Suisse, like, one of the 33 GSIBs in the world, had you know, a lot of people say that they failed because of market conduct issues and because of they failed because there were massive withdrawals. There were massive withdrawals because of market conduct issues. So you've got to address the cause of the withdrawals. The withdrawals are caused by a lack of trust. How do you increase trust? Not by increasing capital ratios, but by running authentic stress tests, by working with other countries, by looking at downstream impacts, looking at exported inflation. But one of the, one of the biggest points I would make is, and I would touch on this, is why would countries like China and India and South Africa promote the idea of an alternative currency for BRICS and for the 22 other countries that they want to have them join, including but not limited to Iran and Saudi Arabia. And the reason is because they want to evade using the U.S. dollar. And the reason for that was that the U.S. seized $300 billion of Russian assets. Yeah from central banks around the world. Which immediately overnight eroded trust. Correct. So if you can just go, because you're the US, and just because it's in dollars, take it away, that's scary for other countries. They, they don't like that. So whilst one can easily criticize, you know, the, the way that, uh, you know, these countries like China are governed and the, 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 their political formation and whether you agree or not in, with democracy. If you're living in a world where a fiat currency, not a gold-based currency, a fiat currency, that Jay Powell can print as much of it as he likes without anyone intervening. Remember, there's no oversight. There's no one that can stop the Fed doing this. The only thing that can happen is the president can appoint the next federal chair. Other than that, there's nothing that can be done. There are some uh, rules of Congress that can intervene, mm -hmm. which are almost never done. Um, That's a major question of who guards the guardians here. Yes. The book actually touches on, this, on the role of banks in society, both as agents of the free market and as extensions of, of the state in the fight against terrorism and, and crime. Can you just elaborate on how this dual role then impacts the stability and trust that we see in the banking system, given what you've just said about uh, the ability of, of the US, for example, to intervene at a geopolitical level against Russia? And uh, I think even the SWIFT system, if you look globally at the, mar uh, at the moment, is being politicized to some mm. extent. Mm. I mean, the, these two ideas seem to almost be at odds with each other. Yes, it's fascinating. Until 2001, September the 11th, banking was the brain that directed capital to the body economic. After 2001, September the 11th, came out the U.S. Patriot Act, 
which was voted heavily by, you know, bilaterally, you know, in, in Congress and Senate. There were very few people who voted against it, which gave the U.S. government surveillance powers to prevent terrorists. And the, that began an era of what later became known as market conduct, which includes rules about anti-money laundering, counterfinancing of terrorism, and counterproliferation, mm. which has to do with nuclear uh, armament, uh, plus uh, tax laws such as FATCA, the Foreign Accounts Tax Compliance Act, and then the Automatic Exchange of Information, and then FICA and Poppy. So all of these rules, it became clear to the U.S. authorities that you simply just use the power of the U.S. dollar. So you simply would just say, if you as a bank are doing business with a correspondent bank in another country who doesn't do X, Y, and Z as we prescribe it, then you simply stop doing business with them or you levy a 30% tax under FATCA. So they used the power of the US dollar to propagate a series of rules and laws that essentially were good laws to make the world safer. You know, the terrorists had funds uh, the pilots that flew the planes into yeah, uh, the, 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 the Twin Towers. Towers. Hamas and Hezbollah must be funded by someone. So if you can isolate the, the people who are funding them, so if you know who they are, the, what's called the ultimate beneficiary, yeah. which is one of the reasons that South Africa got grey-listed, is that we were unable to prove that our financial system can determine uh, the ultimate beneficiary. Um these are good rules, but they completely change what banking is. So banking is no longer a free market agent. It's an extension of the state. So now if it's an extension of the state, then it's an extension of the state which has got a constitution. That constitution will have certain values in it, such as human dignity or you know, the, the rights, human suffrage, uh, don't propagate illegal wars. Don't, mm. you know, don't do mass executions as has occurred in countries like Saudi Arabia. So what happens is in implementing market conduct, you kind of had to sign up for liberal democracy. Yeah. Now, I'm not quite sure what a country like South Africa is going to do if it does pivot towards a BRICS currency, which has got... And one can see why, because the West has been very greedy over a protracted period of time with IMF loans. One could see the frustration in Africa. Um, remember, Cyril Ramaphosa was promised by Boris Johnson an $8.5 billion funding of green energy. And a year later, no one had come up with any solution for that. And he actually, Ramaphosa made some pretty strong statements about that. At, at COP27. So I can see why there is a frustration and why the New Development Bank, which is the bank of BRICS, yeah. wants to create loans uh, in an alternative currency. But who's going to impose market conduct rules and un uh, under which guidance and under why would there be... So we're opening up a can of worms where we're going to have potentially 
an unraveling of all the market conduct rules. Which only really work if you have a unified global financial system and not one that is increasingly looking like it's uh, splintering and becoming more fragmented. You're going to have islands in which different rules apply um, and operate and and it becomes a, a quite dystopian future if you if you want to go down that particular rabbit hole. Just as, as we are reaching the end of our time this week, David, where, where do you see this this heading, because you emphasize the need to address the erosion of trust in the institutions that are upholding liberal democracy. And the, mm. there, there, is a, there is a broad geopolitical sweep over all of this in that we do see democracy in decline around the world, according to Freedom House and all of the, the annual rankings. Mm. It's in retreat. How do you propose this trust can be rebuilt? And what role do you see the banking sector playing in this critically important process for those who believe in the inherent values of Western liberal democracy? So from a global perspective, I would argue that um, the behavior of the U.S. Fed has to be addressed uh, in some kind of congressional investigation or congressional... The Senate Banking Committee should should look very closely at the, at, at the problem of marking your own homework, doing your own stress tests that are completely unlikely um, and, and, and disingenuous, and the printing of money and the export of inflation, etc. From a, a BRICS perspective, I think that, you know, there's a lot of hype about it and a lot of people have poo-pooed it and said, don't worry about it, it's not going to happen. Those people, I think, are not aware of the fact that when Nixon pulled out of the gold standard, six countries got together immediately and created a common currency, which later became the euro. So the likelihood of there being another currency is we've got a proven track record of it happening yeah. in, in the 1970s. That took only three or four years. I mean, uh, it then kind of disappeared and then it be, became the euro. So... I would say that what clearly has to happen is that this, from a South African perspective, the South African banking community, which is one of the strongest banking systems on earth, if not in the top five, definitely. Uh, having consulted around the world, I can tell you that for a fact. This is a very strong, safe banking community. Because because of exchange controls, what is the what underpins and undergirds our inherent financial systemic strength relative to our global peers? Very good central banking, uh, very conservative central banking. We didn't allow, for example, credit derivatives. Um, we don't just print money. Um, very 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 good. We're very fortunate to have very good governance. A very good job done by the banking association very strong leadership. We also came through the banking crisis and there was a consolidation. We've seen the worst. I mean, we've mm. we've had banking, half the banks in South Africa went out of business. And since then, we've had more banking crises. We've had VBS and... Mm. So it's been contained since the A2 banking crisis or what's sometimes called the small banking crisis, small banks banking crisis. So I would say experience, good governance, independence, bank independence from government, which is how it's constitutionally defined, and strong leadership and very sophisticated banking systems, 
and the benefit of international relationships, very high status on the Basel Committee, and conservative. So therefore, what role should our leaders in the South African financial um, and, and broader banking industry and system be playing in trying to recalibrate the, the, the global environment for banks to be, A, more resilient to future shocks, but B, regain a lot of this trust that's been eroded specifically in the developing world? Well, I mean, I definitely think that the banking community should um, make the points that I'm making, which is that we need market conduct. It makes the world safer. So if we're going to have an alternative currency, if we're even going to have the discussion, we need to talk about the values and, and obligations and the, the Kantian values that underpin the concept of market conduct. Right. So you've got to, the Dilma Rousseff, the ex-president of Brazil, who's the CEO of the New Development Bank, has made statements like there won't be any social or moral requirements. I don't think she used the word moral, but there won't be any, we'll just lend in a multipolar world. So I think that's fine, but then how do we stop terrorism? How do we mm. stop money laundering? drug trafficking. So I, I think the banks should be making those points at these meetings, ones that I'm not invited to. You know, the, the, the CEOs of the banks should be making these points. I think they are walking a very fine line. I mean, they're working in a country. I, I say, right at the end of the book, I say that South Africa is at the epicenter of this complex debate. That's the last line of the book. Why are we at the epicenter? Because BRIC, the concept of BRIC was actually invented by Jim O'Neill. Yeah, the Goldman economist. Yeah. Uh, um, and at a very different time in the world, it was really just an agglomeration of countries with high growth consumer markets that could potentially be the next EM flavor of the month. And yeah. how things have changed and evolved. They, they took this concept, which was an investment concept, and made it into political organization. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's... Um, so how does South Africa find itself then at the epicenter? Is, is it because we are trying to be perceived to be non-aligned, present ourselves uh, to be non-aligned? we in almost the atmosphere of Western capital while being also in the political atmosphere of this new unipolar world, which is very much China-centric. Uh, and kind of we still need that Western capital, uh, but politically we, we're still very much in the atmosphere of China. Well, we're at the epicenter because of several reasons. One of the reasons is that without us, there's no African representation. So you can't call it the global south. Mm. Um, Africa's got a billion people. And demographically, Africa's going to have more people in the world of working age than any other continent pretty soon, like by 2050, because of the demographics. I mean, we're the most important continent for the future. That's why we need South Africa. South Africa's got the most sophisticated infrastructure and banking system in Africa. So South Africa is critical, but South Africa also has a constitution. It was democratically elected. So we're one of the countries in BRICS that has got the strongest constitution and the strongest history of overcoming apartheid and very racist, fascist regime. So I, I say that we have the most powerful position, although we're punching above our weight. David, 
this podcast so far is certainly punching uh, well above its weight. And I really look forward to the third episode where on that point, we are going to uh, dive a little deeper into how all of this impacts South Africa, what role South Africa has to play if we are to um, recalibrate and reconfigure the global financial system in a way that is more resilient to these risks and in a way that doesn't increase uh, this splintering that we are currently um, standing on the precipice of. So as always, a great pleasure having you on the show. Take care. Thank you, Michael. That was David Buckham, uh, author of Why Banks Fail, uh, one of the uh, the hottest books to be released uh, this year ahead of the December period. Uh, a great read, Unrelenting Bank Runs, The Conundrum of Central Banking and South Africa's Place in the Global Order. Thanks so much uh, for tuning in to our second episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast. As I said, we're going to be delving deeper into South Africa's location in this broader global conversation about the reconfiguration of the uh, the banking system remember if you've got um, any questions or topics you'd like us to cover feel free to reach out uh, to monocle you can also find us on all good podcast platforms spotify apple iono all of those uh, and for me michael avery it's been a great pleasure bringing you uh, the latest banking podcast by monocle take care